agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by Cleveland area attorney and Republican factotum, Jay Carson. Hey, Jay, how are you doing today? I'm, uh, Mike, I'm feeling more valued than an um, uh, American Samoan voter today. Well, that's um, to, to Mike so, Bloomberg, at least. <laughs> exactly. This, that someone would spend that amount of money for, uh, for, uh, for my vote. Um, but uh, no, otherwise, yeah, uh, can't complain. Spring's uh, spring's getting closer here. In yeah, Cleveland, a- absolutely. So, so uh, you know, I think we'll right. Uh, we'll probably want to lead off with well the the story that I think uh, uh, everyone's uh, speaking of Mike Bloomberg and American Samoa and so forth. So uh, why don't you uh, why don't you kick us off? Sure. Well, I'll say after the the events of um, uh, last week, I was reminded by a line uh, from in Hemingway's uh, "The Sun Also Rises." One character asks another, uh, so how did you go bankrupt? And the answer is gradually and then suddenly. Yeah. Um, and and I think it uh, sort of applies to the campaigns of the late presidential contenders, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, Tom Steyer, Mike Bloomberg, and Elizabeth Warren. Uh, in the span of uh, a week, uh, we're now down to a two-candidate race. Following a Biden victory in South Carolina, which seemed to energize both voters and fundraisers. Uh, Biden swept the southern states on Super Tuesday, as well as picking up Minnesota, uh, while Sanders took his home state of Vermont and uh, I, I'll use the cliche delegate rich uh, California, <laughs> although although California is is a proportional state. So he doesn't get all of them and they're still counting as to as to what his final count will be. Um, uh, on the other hand, uh, financial news uh, Titan. And uh, billionaire uh, Mike Bloomberg uh, spent over $550 million of his own money uh, to win American Samoa. Um, so uh, from from here, the race goes to it's sort of a smattering of, of Midwest states next week, the biggest which uh, of which is uh, Michigan, um, which could be a, a toss up. Um, uh, Sanders had done well in Michigan before. Uh, but with the new Biden energy and and what seems to be, uh, I, I want to say, um, sotto voce kind of uh, endorsement uh, by by President Obama, um, uh, and and his his as well as he's done in the African American community, uh, it, it's going to be pretty close. So so Mike, what are your thoughts as far as? And I guess my last observation before I, I turn to you is that. Um, if you had asked me a year ago, and I think you probably did, you know, where we would be at this point, uh, I think you and I would both probably have answered this. It's a Biden-Sanders race. Yeah. And and here we are. So yeah, we are. so what are your thoughts? Well, you know, it's interesting. You you mentioned uh, you thought about Hemingway. And it's funny, this week I actually – and this will give people a good sense of sort of the high culture, low culture uh, – uh, gap between us. Uh, my initial thought was not of uh, uh, Ernest Hemingway, but of another cultural figure, and that's LL Cool J. And I thought, uh, you know, don't call it a comeback, right? Because, <laughs> you know, that's that's where my head is. But but really, yeah. that's one of my thoughts is that, and it kind of uh, goes into what you were saying, is that this narrative, right, of Biden's amazing, miraculous resurrection, essentially, and that, you know, but that was only because Everyone was just so jumping the gun on almost no evidence. 
You know, it's like it's like a, a, in the the first inning, the first batter up, it's a, it's a triple, and everyone says, "Well, that's it. That's we might as well just yeah. go home." And and so that's why it's not. I don't think a comeback. And I've been saying for a long time, we don't know anything until after Super Tuesday. And I'll I'll you know I won't sprain my arm patting myself on the back, or maybe I will, but it's it. it it turns out that that was actually that was actually right, and of course, you know that's one of the things that always annoys me about political reporting, and I and I get it. You know, it's not like they can say, well, you know, we don't know anything. Come back in a couple of weeks or something like that. Right. But that kind of win loss framing and up down that's you know it's just sort of just sort of ridiculous, basically. So that that's my thought on that. Uh, more generally, it seems to me that kind of the. Uh, much less or uh, much less raucous or mostly silent majority of the Democratic Party spoke on Tuesday. And I say, thank God for that. Um, that was, of course, the result that yeah, I there, there are actually there's there have been a number of sort of um, uh, editorials and, and Republican leaning president uh, in uh, publications that have made the same point that it was sort of a thank you, Democrats. Yeah. Yeah, and I, there was a, a great editorial by uh, by David Brooks, who is sort of a you know the sort of center right version of me. I would I, I would say you know we kind of we kind of glance at each other across. That's how he very, described himself. Yeah, you know, but uh, but yeah, you know, he, his argument is that was that the the establishment maybe has one more chance, and of course, if uh, if Biden either loses the election, assuming he's going to win the nomination, which you know there still is a ways to go, but still. Sure, sure. But if he either loses the election or he gets into office and things deteriorate even further, that's that, you know, that might cause all kinds of problems on the more progressive left, certainly. But, well, you know, that's that's certainly way ahead of things. But I, I am I'm happy about uh, happy about the result to, to a certain extent, I guess, because, you know, I feel like the Biden campaign is sort of a uh, nostalgia campaign, right? Because he talks about the Obama-Biden, you know, that kind of thing. It's sort of like, if you want another Barack Obama, just older and whiter, well, I'm your guy, basically, right? right. And and to me, one of the problems, and here's where I agree with a lot of folks on the progressive left, that there are, I think, some fundamental issues with our democratic institutions. Not that they need to be raised and we need to start over in some kind of a revolutionary type of Sand, Sanderzian way, I don't know, but but that there are some real issues. And one of the things I admired about Elizabeth Warren's campaign was that her focus was squarely on, she called it corruption, I would say institutional reform is a less dramatic way to put it. Uh, to a lesser extent, Pete Buttigieg was like that as well, but I don't get that sense from Joe Biden at all. And, and the reason I think this is important is that because if you believe that there are some fundamental problems with our institutions and you go in trying to do policy stuff first, well, it, it's going to it's going to not work because if your foundation is crumbling, you can't build anything on that. And I think that's what Elizabeth Warren understands. And that's to a lesser extent, maybe what Pete Buttigieg understands. But I don't think that uh, I don't think that Joe Biden necessarily believes that. And so I think that's a I think that's a problem. Yeah. Um, for, uh, first, I want to say I, I I completely appreciate the LL Cool J, cool J reference. I thought you might. Um, and I'm kicking myself that I didn't you know, <laughs> think of that first. <clears throat> um, but I, and because I think it makes a, a larger point that you and I try to make a lot of times regarding political reporting. And it's it's one of these weird sort of things where 
every once in a while something happens that it seems like a surprise and then like uh like a, about a minute or two later you're like oh yeah that was always going to happen anyway yeah uh it was very much the conventional wisdom that that biden would win south carolina uh it was very much sort of the conventional wisdom that uh, biden would would win the, those southern states um um, you know, with Klobuchar out of the race, uh, you know, I, so, so it's one of those, it's, it's a weird thing of, um, it's, it's, uh, it's a surprise until it happens. And then it's, it's plainly obvious that it was always going to happen that way. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's something that, that so often, um, gets lost in the, the horse race coverage. And, and I'll confess, uh, last time I was on, I was, I was very much thinking that, that Biden was, uh, done for, um, uh, or maybe not not done for, but uh, yeah. certainly on the way on the way out. And even I, I mean, um, I I I thought that my, my prediction was that he was in a a deep fade, but he would be able to hold on, and that certainly isn't how it looks like now. So uh, yeah. I, you know, I think it's it's so easy because most of everything we see is that just daily drumbeat from from the media on whatever side and so it's it's understandable that we get swept up in that you know but yeah. i also wanted but to we talk should, we should be better we should know better well we you know i think to, i think sometimes we do but we're human you know but yeah, yeah i wanted to you, you mentioned mike bloomberg uh and i wanted to talk about that a little bit i'll, I'll take issue a little bit with uh with with uh what you said uh, that I mean, you can you can there are a couple of ways to look at the Bloomberg campaign is that, well, he spent around half a billion dollars to win American Samoa and a handful of delegates. Right. Another way to look and that that's certainly true. Another way to look at it is he put out half a billion dollars, roughly a little bit less than that, of anti-Trump ads, you know, because yeah. Mike Bloomberg's number one goal was always and is still to defeat Donald Trump. Now, if that happens because Mike Bloomberg was president. Well, that's certainly a, a preferred outcome. But even, you know, even now after he withdrew, he announced that you know, he's going to form a, basically based on his campaign, this group that's going to focus on six states, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Florida, and North Carolina, because his massive data operation has decided that, or, you know, concluded that that's going to determine the presidency this year. And that, that seems pretty dead on to me and that he's right. going to well, you and i could have concluded that without a massive data well there operation. you go we you know we yeah certainly <laughs> we could but i don't know if bloomberg's hiring but certainly has the budget for it exactly, but anyway yeah. mike we could do it a lot cheaper there you go but you know the point being is that he's he is going to still put an awful lot of money into that you know in a very smart and focused way and so i think there's a very good chance that mike bloomberg will still get what he ultimately wanted just not his ideal of a mike bloomberg presidency but but certainly having his forces his uh, team his money behind what looks like to be the biden campaign will certainly be a a, a major uh, a major plus for the uh, for the democrats well let, let's let's explore that further because that was something that i was interested in 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 talking about and is that um, is, is there a, I, cause I sort of took maybe a little bit of the opposite lesson from this because part of my reasoning for thinking that Biden was, was going to be going by the wayside was that Bloomberg offered the, the other, uh, center lane kind of choice. Um, and maybe without some, some Biden baggage, uh, and, and, um, uh, someone who would, would be a little more appealing to Republicans, uh, or swing voters. Um, but it, it, there was sort of a, uh, to, you know, another uh, music reference that uh, money can't buy you love. Um, 
that despite this this unprecedented amount of of money that was spent, and I think, um, gosh, we could. I, I'm I'm not sure, no. but I mean, this has got to be. He, he outspent Sanders, I think, seventy five yeah. to one. No, yeah, I, yeah, um, and and you're right. I mean, this idea that so many people were talking about is Mike Bloomberg is buying the election. Well, if right. if if you can't even buy more than a handful of delegates for half a billion dollars, maybe maybe we're not. Maybe those folks didn't give the electorate right. enough credit. Yeah, and that's that was sort of my point. Is there is so that so much this uh, argument about uh, billionaires uh, buying elections, um, but it, it's it's harder than it than yeah. than people would think. And and the same thing could be said for for twenty sixteen. I mean, uh, Hillary Clinton outspent Trump. Uh, I, I don't have the exact numbers on hand, but it was roughly you know two to one ish, um, yeah. and and uh, Trump still won. Um, yeah, well, and, when, with, with that, of course, there's the weird confounding factor of free media. But your larger point, absolutely, yeah. I, I agree with. You know, I always, uh, whenever I talk about campaigns uh, to my students, I say money is, you got to think about money as the oxygen of campaigns because, yeah, you need it. I mean, if you don't have it, you're you're done for. But right. just because you have more of it doesn't necessarily mean that you're you're going to come out on top. And Mike Bloomberg's a great example of that. So, I mean, may also, I guess the other piece that, that struck me is it's not exactly even how much money you have, but how you spend it. I, I for one, again, I'm I'm a Republican voter, so I'm I'm not probably the target audience, but I was very much underwhelmed by most of um, Bloomberg's campaign ads that I saw here in Ohio. Uh, and, and that to the extent that it was it was also he always had it was it was very much of a Mike Bloomberg and, you know, sort of here I am with Barack Obama and here's Barack Obama talking about me. And, oh, have you seen my friend Barack Obama, um, which I'd have to imagine just had had Biden like beating his head against the wall. Um, but but all of that seemed to not resonate with uh, Democrat voters. Yeah. Um, and and so that, again, struck me as as uh, fine. now the, the other the other weird exception with Bloomberg um was that like he wasn't really on the ballot in in you know any of the prior contests and wasn't even in the debates and just sort of showed up late to the party with with half a billion dollars. Yeah. So again, that's that's a that's a little bit of a different wrinkle. Yeah. Um. But but I do think that that we have to take away at least to some extent the the lesson that that money can't just buy elections. Yeah. Um. Although it also occurred to me like this morning that. You know, with as much money as as Bloomberg has, he he could probably actually literally buy American Samoa, <laughs> you know, just sort of like, you know, name himself emperor or something there of it. I'm, I'm, but he, he has the, like the twelfth richest man in the world. So, yeah. The other thing I wanted to talk about is is Bernie Sanders. Now, obviously, his plan of running as the Democratic nominee against the Democratic Party is you know run into some run yeah. into some problems, and there's this issue of clearly he needs to do something different, right? And that's that issue of the ceiling. And this this should sound familiar because, of course, we talked a lot about Donald Trump's ceiling running as an unconventional Republican. But right. And I think, we were wrong. Yeah. We were, but the difference here, I think, is that Donald Trump wasn't running sort of, sort of a, clearly against the Republican Party, in, not in the same way that, that Bernie is, right? And And yeah. so I think it's very difficult for – and this is why – the extent to which Bernie Sanders is behind, I think, is different. It's much harder for him than it would be for a more conventional candidate because he's in a position where it's just so much more difficult for him to 
change his message and broaden his appeal because his whole appeal to his core is the fact that he doesn't change his message and broaden his appeal. He is who he is. And so that's really difficult. And when you look at the, you know, one of the big parts of the Bernie Sanders revolution was this idea that the, you know, the, the kids would turn out in massive numbers. Right. And, and, and they that, never do. No, that they never, I, I took a look at this. I looked at the data, <laughs> uh, from, uh, uh, 1964 to 2018 youth turnout, we're talking 18 to 24, 32% on average. And that's compared to, compared to 63% for people 65 and older, you know, and as you go right. up in age, all those groups, it gets higher. And also when you look at that 18 to 24 population, that's around 9% of the U.S. population, the 60, the 55, 65 yep. plus, that's like around a third of the population. So building a campaign on the, on, on the, on the kids who care about your message, that's just not, that's just not, not going to work so much. So to me, even that, it's not so much that young people are for Bernie, but politically active liberal young people. And that's, uh, that's just not enough of a group to build a winning campaign on, even in the Democratic Party to this point. Right. And, and although I would say those, those, uh, that cohort has sort of an outside, uh, outsized voice on social media, yeah. which I think could, can lead to some of this distortion of, of you know, really where, where we are. Yeah. Um, if you, I mean, if you even unconsciously sort of absorb that, you know, here's, here's all what I see. Um, you know, the other, another, uh, uh, something that this is like a footnote, I guess, to this is, you know, part of an election and stepping aside is, uh, losing gracefully. Um, which kind of brings me to Elizabeth Warren, um, who, who made sort of the, the odd, odd remarks about, uh, you know, her candidacy, uh, failed because of, uh, an anti anti woman bias, um, and and that again that struck me just as really, first of all, discordant if she's, she's saying that to the Democratic primary voters, um, and uh, again just kind of nonsensical when you you know who was who was their nominee last time, and uh, as much as the the Democratic establishment sort of moved heaven and earth uh, to make sure that that uh, Hillary Clinton was their nominee last time. So. What what are your thoughts just on on the Elizabeth Warren exit? Well, I think it's easier to exit gracefully if you're, say, uh, a Pete Buttigieg or uh, an Amy Klobuchar, and you know you have you know you have probably multiple additional shots at it. This probably yeah. is was Elizabeth Warren's one and only shot at the presidency, and I think it's true that if not. Uh, a significant amount of overt sexism. There certainly were some people and are some people who had questions about uh, that word electability because of her, you know, because of her gender. And so I can totally see who, where if this is who something. Who A lot of people. I mean, she, she said she said Bernie Sanders did. I, I, he says he and, didn't. And maybe but. he did. Maybe he didn't. But the point is that there were people who were saying, thinking things like that, not necessarily because they just said, well, a girl can't do the job, but because they were thinking, well, a woman just is not going to win enough votes, regardless of how I feel about her. It's those other people who wouldn't vote for her. And that's those mean Republicans who well, you know, not even necessarily that, but but and so I think given all that goes in the blood, sweat, and tears, and and the the amount of yourself that goes into a campaign, and and feeling like 
you you are the smartest person in the room, and I think there's a very good chance that Elizabeth Warren was in most rooms she's in, and that and that you know that this is your and she'd last. Tell you that. <laughs> well, you know, and you know that this is your last chance, and and just seeing it crash and burn, that just uh, gotta be just a deeply devastating sort of thing. And so I think it's difficult to just say, well, you know, oh well. That's that's pretty tough. So I I'm I'm cutting Elizabeth Warren more than a little bit of slack on that. All right. Okay. Um. I could. I, I there's such like this the big big uh, hanging curveball right right out of the plate that I should go after that. Go. Um, Take a shot. But I, I would I would get myself in trouble. Yeah, you always do though. You know, if I said it. If I <laughs> if I said that. Uh, is is what you're saying that uh, we should we should forgive uh, Elizabeth Warren's uh, ungraceful exit uh, because she was emotional? Um, oh, but um, oh yeah, yeah, you are going to get in trouble for that. So, <laughs> so no, I'm, but hey, you're the one who, who brought it up that we cut her cut her some slack because it's, I would cut anyone some slack, and yeah, that, I think it's just a all right. I all think right. So, yeah, your point is you're not you're not saying cut him, uh, Elizabeth Warren some slack because uh, she was emotional. It's that anyone, man or woman, would be emotional in that think, situation. And, and Jay, I Given think yeah, just yet. and I think you can attest having been somebody who's you know run a campaign and so forth. And yeah. at any level, the amount of yourself that goes into it, and and it's just a it's a tough thing. And when we're talking about a uh, all in campaign for the presidency of the United States, when you're in your seventh decade, you know that's a yeah. that's that's a lot, and that has nothing to do with you. Well, well, and it, and, and people don't un- understand the the amount of a commitment that uh, you know. When I I ran my my little run for state representative, <clears throat> um, it, again, it was a a commitment. A you know for. Uh, and then this was pretty much just my own city, yeah. right? Uh, the the idea of of you know you're raising millions of dollars flying around the country, all these different states, huge organizations. You know, it's it's it is a a uh, um, it becomes such a part of you that that having it all of a sudden gone, yeah, um, yeah, is sort of is sort of a, a shock. So absolutely. Hey, you know, before we move on from this, we want to thank our sponsors for today. Uh, the first is Empower. And of course, just about everyone could use some extra savings because, you know, you never know when you might need a financial cushion to help you get through hard times or unexpected work closures like, you know, coronavirus. We're seeing that now, you know. So, but Empower is here to help you save more money than you might have ever thought you could. Here's how it works. You just put in your weekly savings target and then Empower studies your income and your spending and then automatically moves the right amount of money into your savings account where, of course, you're going to be less likely to spend it. Empower also features budgeting for people who hate budgeting and it gives you reports that have actionable spending insights and it personally tailors smart savings recommendations for you. They can even negotiate on your behalf to lower your bills, which is great. Also, they give you real live actual human being coaching for any financial questions you might have. And they feature high interest FDIC insured checking with no minimums. So if you want to save big this year, download Empower. That's E-M-P-O-W-E-R in the App Store or Play Store. I have and over 650,000 people have as well. And in Politics Guys listeners, you get $5 when you use offer code PoliticsGuys and reach your savings goal. Visit Empower.me slash PoliticsGuys for more details. 
We're also sponsored today by The Democracy Group, which is a network of podcasts that are united around a goal we can get behind, helping listeners understand what's broken in our democracy and how people are working together to fix it. And in their podcast, you get to hear from scholars, policy experts, journalists, organizers, and just everyday regular people who are exercising their rights and responsibilities as democratic citizens. And all of the podcasts on the Democracy Group, they go behind the partisan horse race type stuff that we're all probably sick of to examine really larger scale issues of politics, government, and civil society. And the Democracy Group also has a number of podcasts who have been right here. We've talked to, I've talked to them on the politics guys, like Future Hindsight, Democracy Works, and The Science of Politics. Uh, other podcasts in the network include Democracy Matters, How Do We Fix It, In the Arena, Out of Order, and Swamp Stories. For more information about the Democracy Group, including the latest episodes from member shows and deep dive playlists on things like immigration, gerrymandering, money and politics, just visit their website at democracygroup.com. Org, and you also find that URL in today's show notes. Okay, Jay, so what do we have next? Well, you know what? I'm going to, can I break the rules just a little bit to throw in something? Because I'm, I'm going to, I want to agree with you because I think you made a good point on something and I wanted to follow up oh, on it. Oh, please do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Story. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, there have been a lot of these comparisons uh, of, of uh, the Sanders movement uh, running against Democratic Party or as an outsider to the Democratic Party and the Trump movement of, of 2016. And I think you hit a, on a really key point that I think is worth repeating is that uh, Sanders, and I'm just going to say it in a different way, uh, the Sanders uh, coalition, the Sanders cohort uh, doesn't bring anything new. Uh, into the Democrat Democratic Party, uh, right? Other than maybe energizing some youth votes, which doesn't really work that well. Even if you energized them all, it wouldn't it wouldn't turn move the needle all that much. So, so when you uh, say doesn't bring anything new, you mean from a from a uh, voter like bring new people exactly, into the coalition? From a voter okay. turnout okay. standpoint, gotcha. reaching out. I, I don't think there are any people who are uh, Democratic socialists right now who are. Uh, uh, swing voters. You. Yeah. Okay. Right? Yeah, yeah. There's no democratic socialist out there who's like, yeah, maybe Trump. Um, <laughs> uh, no. As opposed to uh, when Trump ran, I think there were a lot of the, uh, you know, blue collar Democrats, Reagan Democrats, uh, or, or again, independent sort of folks in the middle. Even some Obama um, voters who voted Trump. Yeah, yeah. Even, yeah, obviously. Yeah. From the numbers, Obama voters. Um, or maybe 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 Obama maybe people who voted Obama last time or I mean yeah. maybe that's maybe the better way to put it, um, uh, who who voted for Trump in that that you know essentially what I'm saying is is Trump expanded the reach of of the party whereas the what Bernie brings uh, doesn't and yeah. I think so many so many liberals mistake this because they view Trump as this arch conservative uh, which which he really wasn't right I mean if anything he lost some hardcore conservatives you know never Trumper kind of things. Um, uh, but I think that's, I just think that's a, a point worth making as we go forward. And then in a couple months from now, people will think we're really smart. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I, I totally agree. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so our next story we're turning, uh, to is, uh, the coronavirus and it's, it's effect on, uh, both politics and the economy. Um, it's, it's sort of a weird thing for, to, to talk about cause it's, uh, the world has just been so blanketed with coronavirus news 
But as of as of this morning, um, uh, the you know total infections worldwide are more than 100,000. Uh, 80,000 of those uh, are in China. Uh, China has suffered uh, 3,000 deaths uh, related to the coronavirus. Um, again, you, as with any numbers coming out of China, I think you take these with a, a grain of salt. Um, U.S. infections at this point, uh, number 336, um, and uh, deaths to date are uh, 16. Um, uh, regardless, uh, health officials are are now saying this is this is a matter of, uh, you know, when not if uh, sort of sort of situation. Um, uh, economically, I don't even want to talk about the Dow Jones, Mike. Uh, <laughs> been, you get these glimmers of hope and then uh, then tremendous drops following that. Um, but just to put a, a sense of, of where this is in the world economy, Chinese exports have tumbled by 17% in January. Yeah. And, and, and on the one hand, you might say, okay, well, that's a, that's a good thing because uh, they'll have to import more. But their imports have also fallen uh, by 4%. Um, uh, just because there's not as many people going to work or getting stuff in. Uh, the Fed has responded by uh, uh, lowering the an emergency rate cut of one uh, a half percent, um, which again was was something surprising, gave the market sort of a, a, a little bit of a jolt. Um, but uh, again, there's still more backsliding over over long-term concerns of this. So with, with the caveat that uh, neither you nor I um, – our, our doctors or public health uh, people or have any background in uh, uh, infectious diseases. <laughs> I guess the next uh, you know question is is where do we go from here uh, politically? Um, uh, there was there's been some back and forth uh, sort of uh, especially I've, I've seen coming from the left about whether the Trump response is, has been appropriate thus far. Um, what are your thoughts? Well, I think this is the first major crisis not of his own making of Donald Trump's presidency, and it's been uh, pretty thoroughly botched. Uh, not surprising, because uh, in, a, in a crisis, uh, you need a sort of calm, cool sort of person to reassure people, and uh, you need a good amount of a consistent message and, uh, you know, a, a calm which response. Is, which is why he appointed Mike Pence. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, uh, Donald Trump, that's not Donald Trump's that's not something Donald Trump has ever been known for doing. Donald Trump is a disruptor. Donald Trump uh, gets people worked up. So this is completely outside of Donald Trump's area of competence, such as it is. And so it, it doesn't surprise me at all. It also doesn't surprise me in the fact that when you take a look at, you know, some of the uh, things that Donald Trump and his administration have done, they they disbanded uh, the National Security Council's global pandemic team in 2018. They cut CDC's global pandemic funding by 80 percent in 2018. So, you know, I mean, yeah, I think the thing the thing with crisis funding or with preparing for crisis is everyone or not everyone, but a lot of people think, well, if we're going to cut. That's where we're going to cut because, of course, most of the time, by definition, you don't need emergency funds, emergency preparedness, except when you do. And then this idea that you can just, you know, as the president has suggested, well, we can just hire these people back, right? That's not how it works. And so this to me was a clear – when you take a look at, for instance, the, the testing kit issue, compare the United States to other countries, it's pretty clear 
by any think any reasonable evaluation that the United States has handled this very, very poorly. And that falls squarely on the Trump administration. And so, you know, again, doesn't surprise me because this is not an administration known for its uh, known for its competence. And surely they have been incompetent in their response to this. Well, I, I guess I'd, I'd I'd push push back a little bit on on what specifically you you think has been botched because um, I mentioned again, a few the, things the, the there. Demo, right? the Democratic talking points have have been sort of well, Trump tried to cut uh, funding for uh, uh, NAH, um, uh, CDC, that kind of stuff. But but of course those those cuts weren't weren't actually made; they were never realized. No, um, he actually I guess did. The, no, to be guess, clear, no, to be clear, the CDC's global pandemic funding was. Cut. This was not a proposal that was not done. It was cut by 80 percent in 2018. That is just simply a okay. fact. It's also a okay. fact that Donald Trump disbanded the NSC's global pandemic team in 2018. That's a fact. And so it also is a fact that the testing in the United States, the availability of test kits is far, far below what it was in, say, uh, South Korea, in the UK and a bunch of other countries. These aren't these aren't just airy sort of things these are actual facts on the ground okay like i guess you know what i what i turned to is 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 this the type of situation where um if you had the uh nsc global pandemic team still intact what what would they have done differently well i mean you're asking I mean, to that's, argue that's sort of to I mean, argue, I'm, right, I'm to argue some, a negative so I, I mean well no it is it is and that's that's why i'm saying it's sort of uh, well, I think we can extent, say unfair to say this is. Well, you no, know, I, I think play. it is fair to say because the idea that well, can you say that having people actually on the ground ready to respond to this would have made the response better? I think most people would say, well, other things being equal, yeah, we're going to assume that having people who are ready for something like this and have plans in place and that's their job that they're here, yeah, that that would make things better. And saying that well, we don't know that, yeah, sure, we don't know that, but come on. Come on. Well, and also, uh, yeah, not only I, that, not only that, but the president using words like hoax to talk about this, that is just out, outright irresponsible and dangerous. And you get Trump supporters interviewed saying, yeah, I don't even know if this is really a thing. The president saying things like, well, you know, some people just get better by going to work instead of sitting around at home. Or you get the president's son saying things like, well, you know, the Democrats probably want millions of Americans to die in order to bring down my dad. And no one on the Republican side just disavowing that remark, but instead saying things like, well, the Democrats need to turn down the volume. Are you kidding me? This is, I mean, if, if a Democratic, you cannot tell me that the Republicans, if this had been during the Obama administration and this had been the response, that people wouldn't be screaming from the rafters, including, by the way, Donald Trump, who as a private citizen was all over the Obama response to previous crises like this, which was handled far better. So, well, first of all, I'll I'll disavow whatever uh, Trump Jr. said, but um, I appreciate that. So, so there you go. Um, but uh, to me, I, I I guess I mean if if we are now again U.S. infections at this point three thirty eight. Obviously, it's it's much it's bigger than that. But we, don't we don't know, know because the lack of testing know, kits. We don't but know. yeah. Um, but the test kits, as I understand, are are making their way uh, out there and, and are, are widely available. In a lot of places, we might not need test kits. 
at this. We don't point. know, but that's um, the whole point of having test kits. Right. We don't. I, yeah. I understand. We don't know, but again, there, there can be predictions based on. Uh, listen, how many people even are, are suspected? I, I know in in the, the state of Ohio, I think there's like 220 some people uh, who are being monitored and have have been tested, and we have like something like three people that were waiting results back on, and uh, a number of tested negative. Um, but on on the the hoax thing, I'm going to push back on, on that because I think he was pretty pretty clear. Uh, saying he's not saying that uh, coronavirus is a hoax, but he's saying that that uh, the Democrat uh, talking points that that there's something else that could have been done, or that this is this is because of something he did, or because of lack of funding. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, I mean, hoax. now it's a poor choice of words. It's it's a poor choice of words because he throws that out there, and people misunderstand, and uh, and you have a press that is eager to misunderstand. Um, well, wait, wait, wait uh, but, a second. But I so, don't think I don't think at any time the president has said that this is this is somehow a a, a, a hoax. And of course, look, he's. Well, you know, let me ask you certain, this. Hold on, I'm going to push back hard against this because the the idea that he has done nothing wrong and everything has been perfect or something like that. How no. do you square that with the fact that in the United Kingdom, which only had at this point, I think, a couple of days ago, 115 positive cases, has so far tested almost 19,000 people for the virus, whereas in the U.S., as far as the, the latest data I have, only under 2,000 people. The fact that the testing apparatus has not been available that how is that not a failure of government i mean protecting people in a pandemic is a core function one of the core functions of government and the idea that this this response has been somehow not perfect i mean this idea that, oh everything's done fine it just stuff happens are you are, is that well are you saying are you saying that well basically the trump administration has handled everything fine and uh you know just stuff happens I don't understand I mean, that. Yeah, I mean, at this point, yes, I am saying that, I think. I mean, that we've got, look, we're monitoring folks who are coming in. We're we're testing folks who are at high risk. Uh, there were some goof-ups, and there were government goof-ups uh, by the CDC where people requested testing, and the CDC said, no, thanks, uh, sorry, you don't meet the criteria for who we're going to test. Uh, it wasn't a matter of, of uh, availability of, of kits, which again, I, I well, think actually is, it is because is we don't have less and less of a problem. The, the, at the other well, the press conference the other day, I mean, the press kept you know pushing on: uh, is this a situation where anyone who who wants to be tested can be tested? Um, and I think that's sort of a almost a ludicrous idea that well, yeah, any, anyone in the world just says, "Hey, I," or anyone in the country says, uh, "I need a coronavirus uh, test kit. Um, test me now." Um, well, no, of course the, not. the government has a responsibility to to look at those most at risk, uh, the places where the disease is most likely spread. Uh, people who are are have have the symptoms also have some likely contact, um, and and move forward that way. And at this point, um, you know, no is is the response perfect? No, but no response uh, something like this ever is. Um, so, but, so, but my sense is we are we are handling it. Well, and and I I don't wow. see a yeah you you think I, I, I would hate think, to see what handling it poorly would be I guess if you think this is handling it well um you know may, maybe maybe Fox News thinks we're handling it well but I just I just do not I do not see how one can square that with uh, with just the, the facts on the ground and you know but but anyway uh, you know well, we I, mean, have, I, I mean look look I, I would it, I would point to the numbers that that's what that, I would point if, to if, yeah, if, exactly. if these other places are are doing all the testing and what's 
how many confirmed and you know we'll we'll probably know in a couple weeks uh where we stand and how we've done a containment um but i i, I think uh the united states is 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 going to turn out having having done much better containment than a lot of other places well would you agree at least that the president has been irresponsible in many of his public comments sure okay sure. I, he could he could do better but you know what else he, but he also made comments uh, that were uh, really of a piece of of what uh, uh, the CDC and other folks were saying that look, don't panic. And if Trump Trump says don't panic, then people say, oh, it's you know he's saying he's playing this down. He's not uh, taking this seriously. Uh, when that is really sort of the 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 the, the wise wise advice, I think. Um, you know, I think there's also. Uh, I don't know that he said you can get better by going to your job. No, what he um, said was I say he said. Literally, and I'm only just barely paraphrasing. He said, yeah. okay, and I well, and I quote: "Some people get better when they go to work instead of sitting around at home." That's exactly what he said on Fox News. Right. Well, again, that's that's Trump uh, sort of misspeaking. But no, I not misspeaking. There's, okay, there's something misspeaking. How is it misspeaking? It's just Trump just not giving a damn and just saying whatever comes into his head because that's what Donald Trump is. Oh, my sense is he's trying to make the point that for a whole lot of people, a lot of people who have been infected, what they end up with is sort of a, a mild to moderate cold, uh, and they're better before too long. And that's actually been a problem with the spread because a lot of people don't. Uh, 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 there was a story in, in the German company who had uh, Chinese employees who had visited, uh, and they had a uh, then folks who, um, again, you know, they thought it was coming down with a cold. Uh, didn't seem like a big deal, you know, went into work and then, and then spread it. And that's, that's sort of the, the issue there, uh, is that it, it, there, for a lot of people, this is not a serious life-threatening illness. Um, that, that's what uh, so, you get from that. But, I mean, a, a normal person is going to hear that and say, yeah, the president says it's no big deal, go into work, whatever. I mean, I, I, it seems to me that a lot of people are just so carefully and, and meticulously parsing what Donald Trump is saying to make it sound even the smidgen of like, well, this is a responsible thing to say. If you look at it from this angle, standing on your head with the wind in the West or something like that. I mean, it's just a, a manifestly irresponsible man who's making a public health crisis far worse. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess, I guess I look at it differently because I think most people in America understand who Donald Trump is and what he says. And I don't think there are many people, uh, and this is where you and I would disagree that, that would take him literally or would look to him for medical advice. I think a lot right? of people I mean, take I, Donald Trump you know, literally. I, mean, I, don't think, I don't think there's anybody who's going to show up to work and say, well, the president said I should go. I, I, you know, I do what the president tells me. I think a um, lot of people, I mean, like I said, there was uh, there have been people who have been interviewed at, uh, at, at Trump events saying, yeah, I think this coronavirus thing is a hoax. Using the same okay. words at the president. So, I mean, where do they get that from? Well, I, I, I would be willing to bet that when the president of the United States uses the word hoax in close proximity to the word coronavirus, people mash those things up. And that's dangerous. So okay. another point I wanted to make is, you know, this this brings up the related issue of how our social safety net and employment benefit system is totally not designed for this. It's easy it's easy for people to say, well, if you're sick, just stay home. And maybe that'll be a week. Maybe that'll be two weeks, whatever. But a lot of people don't get paid sick leave. 
A lot of people only get a few days of paid sick leave. And a lot of people with kids, when they use their paid sick leave, it's because their kids are sick and they stay home to take care of their kids. And, you know, people like me, I can I can put my classes online if I just stay home or something like that. But a lot of people are not in that situation. Plenty of Americans are in a situation where they're living paycheck to paycheck. They don't have the time off. They don't have the benefits. And if things spread to the point where some, you know, infectious disease people think they might, this is going to be an incredible economic hardship on these people. And that's a major problem. So you and and what do you recommend? Well, I mean, I recommend what I've always recommended is we need a far better social safety net. We need a lot more guaranteed sick leave. We need we need, you know, uh, a system that can protect people in situations like this when through no fault of their own, they miss a paycheck or they can't go into work for a week or two. That should not destroy them economically. And we don't have a system like that. And that's a that's a tragedy. So, well, I, I I. Look, I would I would agree with you that I think uh, having sick leave is is good for workers. It's good for the company, um, and and you know good for good for the country all around. Um, but that said, and again, we don't know. We don't know as far as how big uh, this is going to be. How many people would have to stay home? Um, but I mean, consider. Every year we have have much more uh, sickness from you know general things like like colds and flu sure. that we've had for forever uh, than in fact uh, thousands hundreds of thousands uh, millions of people um, versus what we're looking at now where we're still in the hundreds and even even China um, is is at eighty thousand which if you think of that in in proportion to their population um, is 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 a pretty you know small drop in the bucket. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm. I'm just making so the larger what I'm point that I, you know. Yeah. Now, I mean, I'm. I'm more concerned that the you know fear we have the fear is fear itself, and it's sort of like the there there's is a little bit of opportunism here and saying, well, this is something we've always wanted anyway, and aha, here comes the coronavirus. Uh, so now uh, I think we ought to demand a government re- required uh, sick leave. We I, should I demand that, way, and not the, because the better, it, better, 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 but the better way, I think the uh, is is let the market do it. We have a situation yeah. right now. Yeah, that's where worked out really well. That's worked out really it, well. It we has, have millions of we have Americans. A, we have a situation right now where employers can't fill enough jobs, um, and and wages are rising, benefits Slowly. are rising. No, benefits are not. That's 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 crap. Um, that's just not true. But uh, we have a situation where where joblessness is very low, but uh, wages are rising very slowly, and benefits are are not rising at all in any appreciable amount. And so this is the case where for decades now, we've had a situation, especially as the workforce has become less and less unionized, that the power of individual workers to ensure that they're taken care of has been less and less. And we get a situation, not just like coronavirus, but just with seasonal flu, which, you know, certainly uh, tens of thousands of people die and people can't afford to take the time off and stay home because we have a totally inadequate safety net. The market has been has had generations to provide this. It hasn't done it. And that is a failure of the market. And when markets fail, that's when government needs to step in to take care of people. And that's what we need to see happen. Okay. I, I'm going to take also a little bit of a, a different view on this. And I think that in the end, I think uh, the politics of this uh, may end up helping Donald Trump. 
Um, okay, and, and how's that? And no, and again, you're going to say that's crazy. That's insane. no, no. I'll, I'll, I'll wait. I'll wait to hear you out before I say it's crazy. Go ahead, tell me. Well, if if you look at you know what has been um, uh, you know the Donald Trump mantra from from the beginning is that uh, look, I I want to have stricter border control. I want to know who's coming and who's going in this country. Um, and this is this would be a very Trumpian sort of. Uh, sort of message, right? This this is a a situation where that originated uh, in China uh, and was brought here by travelers. And if we, I think you could make the argument if we had had better uh, control, better screening, and all this sort of thing at, at uh, borders, um, we would we would have better containment. Um, we're getting that now, and it's sort of a, a you know he's going to be able to say, look, I see, I, I told you so. Um, this is this is just one reason why we need to have uh, secure borders. Uh, the second is the impact that this has had economically uh, on the world has, has come largely because so much is made in China. There is so much dependence on China uh, for supply chain stuff, for things that pieces of, of what we make here is, are made there. Uh, and Trump has pushed the, uh, you know, American first and want more manufacturing here. Uh, the tariff, uh, uh, the trade war had actually pushed some of this manufacturing uh, supply chain stuff away from China because people were starting to think, look, there, there's some concerns here. Now it didn't ramp up quick enough because it's it's a big investment and a lot of people were willing to wait it out. Um, but I think there's there's this message out there that people are realizing that, look, uh, China is great to do business with, uh, both from an export standpoint and an import standpoint. Um, but when you look at the Chinese government and and their the way they operate and the, the lack of transparency there, um, I, I think a lot of businesses are are starting to rethink uh, how much emphasis they want to want to put on China, which again is a very Trumpian uh, message of of uh, you know we, we don't want to be dependent uh, on on some foreign uh, foreign country for whatever it is that that we need, whether it's supplies for medicines, whether it's supplies for gadgets, whether it's making iphones um, and and there is sort of a uh, you know subtle anti globalism sort of sort of message that that's going to appeal to the the trump populist base and make other people say yeah well maybe he's he's got something there i I see what you're saying. I don't think it's crazy. I think it's going to appeal to exactly the sort of people. Ago, it was crazy. No, no. I, I said I would hear you out before I said it was oh, crazy. Yeah. So I actually, <laughs> you know, but no, I don't think that's crazy at all. I think that's exactly the sort of message that appeals to a lot of Trump voters. I don't think it has any broader appeal because the people who would believe that sort of ridiculousness are exactly the sort of people who already voted for Donald Trump. Because, of course, the answer as, at, you know, and I, I know you're not anti-globalization in that sense. The answer Hardly. to... Yeah, the answer to this is not to say, well, we're going to just build Fortress America and big, beautiful walls and, you know, uh, issue everyone with masks and keep all those funny looking people out, certainly. But, uh, yeah, I can absolutely see where this is the sort of thing where Trump or a lot of Trump voters, a lot of nativist type people would point to and say, see, that's exactly right. Them damn Chinese people there, they got diseases and so forth. We need to keep them out. And that's horrific and horrendous and totally wrong headed. But, yeah, that's Donald Trump. Absolutely. So I don't I, disagree I think, with you. I, I don't I think disagree. I think you misunderstand me. Okay, go ahead, please. Try to elucidate. It's it's perfectly rational for American companies right now who have a big reliance on China 
to start rethinking that. Oh, I don't think American companies are rethinking that at all. I think you're just wrong on that point. I think American companies are eager to invest in China. They, they see the growing market and they, they want to get in on that. So the idea that uh, Donald Trump is or anything is forces is making American companies less interested in China. I just don't agree with that. I think the tide of the tide of history and demographics and following the money is just now pushing more and more companies toward China because that's that's where the money, that's where the people are, that's where the future is in Asia. So no, I disagree with that entirely. Again, again, I think you're misunderstanding me. Okay. Um, my 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 point is. Ameri say you were an American company and you have a factory in China that makes uh, some kind of component that goes into the widgets that you make sure. or the pharmaceuticals you make or whatever. Or more you likely you just you contract some point, out for a these, part. These companies yeah. are now saying, you know what, maybe we shouldn't have this many eggs in the Chinese basket um, because of things like this can happen that can shut down our supply chain. Uh, and and really do us harm globally. Okay, in that sense, yeah, and we can I see find we yeah. can find other places to source those parts, widgets, whatever they they may be, that have a a government where we have a stronger uh, uh, belief in. There's more transparency, uh, and is is less likely to to result in these kind of massive shutdowns that's going to have the ripple effect of shutting down. Uh, our our facilities elsewhere in the world. I, I, yeah, that's okay. what I'm saying. Yeah. I don't think I don't think it's this nativist. Gotcha. Okay. The funny yeah. looking people. What I'm what I'm saying is, I think there's a strong economic argument to be made for. Let's diversify our supply chain and not over rely. Yeah. On the Chinese. Likewise, let's not over rely on sales to China. It's great if we can make sales to China, uh, and I think every company uh, in the world probably wants to do that because it is this this uh, huge uh, market. Um, but also realize that that if they are are betting the farm on sales in China, um, that that could be a riskier proposition uh, because I, yeah. that economy it can can be closed off at any time. I don't think it's as risky as you think, but I, I see your point, and I, I to a certain extent I agree with that. That uh, it emphasizes the uh, the importance of having more flexibility in your supply chain for events. But in terms of dealing with things like coronavirus or that, you can actually make a case that an authoritarian government is something you want more because they can uh, they can take stronger actions right away. So I wouldn't say this is a coronavirus thing. I think this is a, a large coronavirus might have uh, kind of highlighted the importance of having some sort of plan B for your supply chain. Well, that's difficult too, because just like when we were talking about, well, well it's, it's a big investment. Right? Exactly. And if, yeah. if you're not going to need it 99% of the time, it's really hard to justify to your shareholders. Well, we have this set up to go and we're never going to use it probably, but if we need it, we need it badly. So that's, that's the, you know, the kind of logic of the market pushes back against that sort of thing. But yeah, now that I understand what you're saying, I, I think there is, you know, I think there is an important point. And that's much less crazy. Yeah, well, yeah. and you know, and that, that certainly is a, a downside of of globaliz globalization that when something happens in, say, China or something like that, it inevitably affects the entire world in a way it wouldn't have 50 or 100 years ago or something like that. So yeah, absolutely yeah. on that, I agree. All right, well, you know, on that the point of agreement, maybe we can move into our recommendations for the week. This is kind of a, a new thing we've uh, wanted to do for a while. We used to kind of do a thing like that 
this sort of like yeah. what we're reading. This is just kind of a broadening of it to talk about maybe things that we're reading or seeing or even maybe even negative recommendations like, oh, stay away from this or something like that. But uh, we thought we'd try it. So, uh, Jay, what do you Vacation in Wuhan. Negative <laughs> recommendation. <laughs> yeah, no, probably not a good idea. So, so what are you recommending this week, Jay? Well, okay, mine is going to be – this is going to be completely weird. And, okay. and it's not necessarily – I, I guess I guess that I would recommend everybody do this. It's just I want to sort of relay a experience that I, I had that's, that was, was sort of surprisingly fun and interesting. Um, something – a work project that I'm working for – working on um, required me to go back and review – the con the debates on the Ohio Constitution wow. uh, in uh, as, as amended in 1912. So I'm not I'm not recommending everyone just go out and read the roughly 2,000 pages worth of debates uh, on the Ohio Constitution. That's good because no one's doing that. Okay, <laughs> right. <laughs> People, Ohio, they're writing this down. Ohio Constitution. I'm I'm on it. Um, uh, but you could you could read your own state's constitution. But but I was struck by, and, and here's the thing: you would enjoy it. Um. And and people who are sort of government junkie kind of people would enjoy it. People who enjoy, um, uh, again, sort of a high-minded sort of discussion. And and if you read the stuff that how these guys talked compared to how our politicians uh, talk today. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and again, it's it's what's fun because look, I'm looking. This is the the 1912 revision uh, of, in Ohio. So it's it's not founding father language, you know, which can be sort of you know sort of dense and tough to get through. Weird It's still very much yeah. much modern. Uh, but but there's there's very much just a cleverness and, and like the the insults back and forth are are freaking hilarious. Um, and and also some of the controversies. There is a a like two pages worth of discussion of uh, a newspaper article alleging that uh, one of the members of the constitutional uh, convention uh, was drinking beer uh, <laughs> in the, during the evening and had offered beer to another. And um, it was, it's, it is uh, so much, so much fun. And again, it's, it's not something, I guess, a recommendation, but if you are of that bent and just, you know, I, I'm sure all these, these it, in, in Ohio, it's online for free. Uh, you can just pull these up. Um, and I imagine it's the same in most other states. Um, but it, it was just a, a refreshing window on sort of a different age and, and seeing what's different and, and what's the same, mm -hmm. yeah. if, if you know what I mean. Yeah. There, and there's very much stuff of, of things that are, are very much still the same. And, and that uh, gives uh, comfort to my conservative soul. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, conserv small species conservative. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? That there, there's nothing new under the sun. Um, uh, but there's also sort of the, the wistfulness of, of this is a, uh, as, as Obi-Wan Kenobi would have said, sort of a, a more civilized age, right? Elegant, elegant weapons for a more civilized age. But, yeah. uh, All right. Well, my recommendation is going to go a little bit further back than that. And that is, uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to recommend the book, actually. It's Epictetus's Discourses and Handbook. And this is going way, way back into, I don't know, like 100. Third century or so. Yeah, so actually, actually, even before that, first first century. So first, we're going, okay. we're going way back, not just the handbook, but the discourses in the handbook. The handbook's kind of like, is like Epictetus's fun little sayings. They're not really fun, but you know, the discourses are kind of longer. Some of them are. Yeah, some of them are. But, uh, I, as, as you know, Jay, I'm kind of like half a stoic, um, in the capital S, not the small S way. I'm not a yeah. hugely small S stoic, but, uh, Epictetus has, has been sort of a, a guide to me in a lot of things. And, uh, right now I'm going through some hard times and he's been a particularly 
helpful guide. Um, and what you if you don't know anything about Stoicism, what you know about it is probably wrong. And a lot of modern Stoicism is just sort of trash, basically, I think. But but anyway, uh, I give this a, a look. And the translation really does matter. Don't get some awful Victorian translation for free on the internet. They, they tend to be horrible and off-putting and so forth. I've read a bunch of translations. My favorite by far is the Everyman Library translation edited by uh, Christopher Gill, translated by Robin Hard. It's only like eight like under nine bucks on Amazon. There's also an Oxford World Classics translation that's like uh, pretty inexpensive too on Amazon. Great stuff, super helpful. Some, some I think, perennially good advice about living a good life and being a decent person. Uh, you know, you can take it in a religious way. Epictetus was kind of a God sort of guy, but it also can be deeply secular as well. And uh, like I said, it's been very personally helpful to me and I would recommend it to, I've given away plenty of copies of uh, the Epictetus uh, discourses and I recommend it very highly to folks. So if, if I can weigh in, I, I probably, I, I have um, the Epictetus discourses and uh, the handbook uh, on my Kindle and I literally read it probably you know before going to bed uh four out of five nights four out of okay, seven nights a go. week okay um i mean i'm yeah seriously i'm not making this up and cool, yeah. and this is a weird sort of thing because mike you and i both kind of came to epictetus separately yeah. and on different <laughs> no <laughs> different idea routes. no it's just a weird coincidence yeah yeah um but uh yeah i, I think um and then after you read epictetus then you're going to want to read marcus aurelius and and all this other uh all the sort of stoicism that, that goes back there and and it's it is it's a, a really different way of looking at looking at stuff um and it it's not always easy but but once you start reading it 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 does start to at least i find work in your life yeah you know what i mean it's Absolutely. it's a um and and also if you if you consider um uh Epictetus's life he was a he was a slave eventually freed and then became a teacher and um uh, became a teacher to a lot of other uh prominent romans um the the world that they lived in um and and the the consequences of the things that that could go bad uh and often did uh, frequently um uh mike mike's no fan of donald trump but um, there's something that went we, bad. We, yeah. We both agree that like, look, Nero, Nero would have been worse. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, so, so yeah, it, it, there's this, a, a, a great sort of just taking a different view of the world that, uh, you know, if I can paraphrase the only, um, you can't control circumstances. Uh, the only thing you can control is essentially how you react to those circumstances. Uh, and, uh, I, I think it's, I, I, I can't, I, I also cannot recommend, uh, Epictetus enough. So. All right. Well, on that joint recommendation, there you go. That's a double recommendation. Of course, we'll have a, I'll put a link to, uh, uh, that in the, in the show notes, but, uh, that sort of does it for today, but not entirely, because, of course, if you would like a second full-length Politics Guys episode every week, you can get that by becoming a Patreon supporter. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking about a big abortion case that the Supreme Court heard this week. And also, we're going to be talking about some uh, listener questions that folks have submitted. So I'm really looking forward to that. And also, supporters, you get ad-free versions of all of our episodes as well as a bunch of other good stuff. To get the details and to become a supporter, just go to patreon.com slash politics, guys. Also, 
If you can't afford to become a supporter, we get that. And you want to get those midweek episodes. We will definitely do that for you. Just email me at Mike at com, and I'll get you all set up with that. I'm happy to do that. Finally, if being a monthly supporter is too much of a commitment, but you'd still like to help out occasionally, you can do that too through PayPal. You'll find the link on our website, politicsguys.com and stuff you can do for free subscribe to the show leave ratings and reviews and especially this is a huge thing sharing your favorite episodes on social media or email that helps us out a lot if you want to get in touch touch with us you know how to do that mail to politicsguys.com there is our wonderful bipartisan politics subreddit you'll find the url in the show notes we've also got a facebook page and we are on twitter at politics guys the executive producer of the politics guys bruce johnson wilma moreno andre masker daniel toe and chris wilkerson today's show is produced by jay carson and michael baranowski we'll be back with a new show next week we hope you'll join us